Hello there, this is Stuart Haynes, and welcome to the iFormerX podcast, and thanks for listening. And if you've not done so already, consider subscribing to the iFormerX podcast so that you'll get each and every episode automatically downloaded to your smartphone, and that way you won't miss an episode. And if you find this podcast helpful, please be sure to like and rate us. We rely on word of mouth to attract new members to iFormerX. If you're not already a member of iFormerX, you can sign up today. It's free to health professionals. Just visit our website at iFormerX.org and click on the sign in join link, which is in the upper navigation bar. One of the most popular features on our website is our top 10 commentaries. These commentaries are intended to be a succinct summary of a new guideline, a therapeutic approach, or a practice management issue. And as their title implies, the authors describe 10 things that every clinician should know about. In today's episode, we'll be talking about the recently published Kidney Disease Improving Global Outcomes, or KDGO, guidelines on the treatment of chronic kidney disease and hyperglycemia in patients with CKD and comorbid diabetes. The prevention and treatment of chronic kidney disease has changed very substantially in recent years with amounting evidence regarding the protective effects of the sodium glucose transporter 2 or SGLT2 inhibitors have on kidney function. Now, as all of our listeners are aware, CKD and diabetes are common bedfellows. Indeed, diabetes plus hypertension are the two most common, potent, and modifiable risk factors for the development of chronic kidney disease. And for this reason, being aware of and routinely implementing the KDGO guideline recommendations in patients with diabetes will have a very positive impact on patient outcomes. And joining me today to talk about the KDGO recommendations and their top 10 summary are doctors Kara Allstad, Gurminder Sangera, and Darren Grabe. At the time of this recording, Dr. Allstad and Dr. Sangera were in the final month of their PGY2 ambulatory care residency training program at the Albany College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences. And, and Dr. Grabe is the chair of the Department of Pharmacy Practice at Albany College of Pharmacy and a clinical specialist who focuses on nephrology and kidney disease. Our guests today are all first-time contributors, so it's great to welcome Kara, Germander, and Darren to the podcast today. Welcome. Hi, thank you for having us here today. Germander and I are days away from completing our PGY2 training, and this is a fun way to wrap up the year. Yes, we've participated in pharmacy services in several different clinics over the year, including in dialysis. So the kidneys are definitely at the forefront of our minds. Yes, thank you, Stuart, for the invitation. It's such a pleasure to be here today to talk about a topic that's near and dear to our kidneys. So Darren, I'd like to start our discussion by talking about the extent of the problem and why every ambulatory care and community pharmacy practitioner should be paying close attention to maintaining healthy kidney function and people with diabetes, CKD is a, a worldwide problem, and its prevalence is growing. So let's set the stage for the KDGO guidelines by talking about how common the problem is, why people with diabetes are at high risk for developing CKD, and what the consequences are. Sure. This is an excellent opportunity for us to really speak about something that I think is often overlooked. We know that there are about 30 million people that have, in the U.S. anyway, have CKD. 
Unfortunately, only about 10% of them are actually aware of it. In addition to that, there's another 75 million in the U.S. that are at risk for CKD, primarily due to hypertension and, and diabetes or the combination thereof. So it's a large problem that goes relatively unrecognized. Some resources that have come out to sort of help with that have been, in the U.S. anyway, have been offered by the National Kidney Foundation, where they have provided some change packets that were modeled after the Million Hearts campaign to help practices understand what the problem is and how to manage it from their practice setting and address the problem. I think it's important to recognize that it's only a couple of tests that can help diagnose kidney disease or at least understand what stage it's at. The problem with kidney disease is that it is relatively unknown about in the public. And I think most people you know, might know about their hearts, but they don't really think about their kidneys or what they do or how they function or how to know when they're not feeling so well because of them. And it's really two simple tests, a marrow filtration rate based off a of serum creatinine measurement, as well as a urinalysis, which can test for albumin and, and protein in the urine. And those things are very simple to do and relatively inexpensive. And it prevents a lot of costs that come down the way in terms of costs. With no CKD, the costs are Medical costs for a patient are typically about seven or $8,000, but every stage of CKD that follows stage two, three, and four and five, those costs continue to double, leading to about $80,000 costs to the patient when they're in stage four and five. So it's a significant problem, one that has a lot of morbidity and mortality. Now, with respect to diabetes, what's interesting about that is not everybody with diabetes gets kidney disease or progresses to end stage. But what it does do is increase the cardiovascular risk substantially. And so there's an opportunity to not only prevent kidney disease, but prevent cardiovascular disease. And certainly now we have much better therapies that can address the problem earlier on in a multifaceted way. So in the commentary, Kara, you talk about lifestyle modifications and the importance of customizing our recommendations. First, what are some of the lifestyle behaviors that have been demonstrated to have a positive impact on kidney health? And second, why is customizing your recommendation so critical? So diet is important for everyone, but particularly when we start thinking about diabetes and kidney disease, it can get more overwhelming for our patients. And I think the best thing we can do is just to remind them to keep it simple. So we want to start by recommending healthy individualized diets that are high in vegetables, fruits, whole grains, fiber, legumes, plant-based protein, unsaturated fats and nuts, and then lower in processed meats, refined carbohydrates, and sweetened beverages. Of course, taking into consideration individual needs of each patient, what they have access to, and what resources they have to support their diet. Unfortunately, the number of randomized controlled trials reviewing diet in patients with diabetes and CKD is so small, so most of our recommendations are coming from what's well-established in the general population. And so maintaining a healthy diet has numerous health benefits, which I think we're all aware of, so I won't go over those here. So this is an area of improvement where we can really support our patients and empower them to make changes on their own. Could be starting by recommending they increase their non-starchy vegetables and decrease added sugars in their diet. Some other quick recommendations, sodium intake should be less than two grams a day. Those with advanced CKD may need to limit their potassium-rich foods with certain vegetables and fruits that may be high in potassium. Another hot topic within diet is protein intake. So those with diabetes and CKD 
not treated with dialysis should get 0.8 grams of protein per kilogram of weight. Those that are on dialysis will require a little bit more, but this comes from what's recommended in the general population. There have been studies of what happens when we go higher or lower than this recommendation, but we haven't seen any benefit. And actually, there's some potential harm those with diabetes and CKD. For example, this was hypothesized that it would reduce glomerular hyperfiltration and slow the progression of CKD. However, limiting protein in those that have diabetes who may have already been advised to reduce carbohydrate and fat intake may then be at risk of malnutrition due to too much calorie restriction. This would be more prevalent, this potential for malnutrition in countries where patients don't receive adequate protein intake. When we look at the long-term effects of high protein intake, particularly in diets greater than a gram per kilogram per day, we don't really know what the outcomes are, and it could potentially be harmful to the kidneys due to excess amino acid excretion. High-protein diets could increase acid load and potential for metabolic acidosis, which is more likely in those with low kidney function. So again, when we're thinking about diet, let's keep it simple and just take an individualized approach based on our patient's age, physical activity, comorbidities, and weight. Another important step is to utilize our accredited nutrition providers, our registered dietitians, and diabetes educators as available. For our exercise recommendations, we're shooting for the standard of 150 minutes per week of moderate intensity activity or to a level that's compatible with the patient's cardiovascular and physical tolerance. So we're going to pick exercises that are appropriate based on potential fall risk and also based on their baseline physical activity. So individualization is really important. I think we've all heard from patients that they feel most cared for when they have healthcare providers and they think know who they are, understand them personally. So each patient will vary in terms of their activity, their access to food, their food preferences or intolerances or their cooking capabilities. So what works for one may not be the solution for another. And rather than trying to all get them on the same diet or same exercise plan, it's best to work with them and find out what's important for them, what they're capable of, and then try to work on adding some kidney health into their habits and their values. And our patients will be happier, more engaged, and probably have better outcomes when we are working to include more of who they are into their care. Well, Germander, you reinforce the need to stick with the tried and true, specifically the recommendation to use ACE inhibitors or an ARB in patients with diabetes and hypertension as the backbone of therapy. But the new kids on the block are the SGLT2 inhibitors, and the KDGO guidelines strongly recommend that patients with diabetes and comorbid CKD be started on an SGLT2 inhibitor. What's the basis for this recommendation, and does it matter which SGLT2 inhibitor is prescribed and used, or can we just use whatever is available on the formulary? So the guidelines strongly recommend the use of SGLT2 inhibitors, and I'm going to be going over some of the data to support this recommendation. There's three cardiovascular outcomes trials that were done on this class of medication. Empireg outcome and Canvas demonstrated that patients who received empagliflozin and canagliflozin has significantly lower incidences of the primary outcome of death from cardiovascular causes, myocardial infarction, or non-veil stroke when compared to those who received placebo. In declared to me, dapagliflozin was non-inferior to placebo for the primary safety outcome, which was a composite of major adverse cardiovascular events. 
We are also aware of the benefits of empagliflozin and dapagliflozin that were seen in the heart failure trials, Emperor Reduced, Emperor Preserved, Deliver, and DAPA-HF. Both Canvas and Declaratimi demonstrated the additional benefit of slowing progression of albuminuria and were significantly beneficial over placebo for the composite renal outcome of 40% reduction in EGFR, need for renal replacement therapy, or death from renal causes. These notable findings prompted further investigation of kidney outcomes leading to the Credence, DAPA-CKD, and EMPA-Kidney trials. These studies demonstrated that canagliflozin, dapagliflozin, and empagliflozin were significantly beneficial over placebo for their respective renal composite outcomes, which consisted of decline in kidney function and stage kidney disease and death from renal or cardiovascular causes. All three of these trials were stopped early to efficacy, and given the protective effects for multiple organ systems and the renal protective effects being seen in patients with CKD with or without diabetes, there's a stronger recommendation now to consider SGLT2s as first-line therapy. So now, which one should we be using? You should pick an SGLT2 with documented kidney or cardiovascular benefits, namely empagliflozin, canagliflozin, and dapagliflozin. Dapagliflozin and empagliflozin specifically also do have that data for use in heart failure, which is important to keep in mind. You should also take EGFR into account as there's different cutoffs to initiate for each agent, depending on the indication. For our purposes, any of the three SGLT2s with evidence behind their use may be used as long as the patient's EGFR is greater than 20. Insurance coverage is improving with most covering at least one SGLT2. And while these are newer drugs that can be quite expensive, there are various payment assistance programs that are available for qualifying patients. In the event that a prior authorization is needed, there's plenty of evidence available to support their use. Well, in the commentary, Kara, you talk about a misconception with the SGLT2 inhibitors, a belief that they are no longer effective when the GFR declines to less than 30 or 40 mils per minute. Where does this misconception come from? And do they lose efficacy as the GFR declines? And when should they be stopped? So I think there are a few places where this misconception comes from. First, this class of medication was originally approved for use in diabetes. So our focus was on lowering blood glucose. And we understood that this glucose lowering effect was made possible by the kidneys excreting glucose. And if the kidney function was impaired and cannot filter out the glucose, then we're going to see it be less effective. So I think based on what we understood there, we assumed that all functionality of the medication was lost as kidney function declined. Until recently, we didn't have great data saying otherwise. However, now we have trials that focus on renal outcomes like DAPA, CKD, Credence, and EMPA kidney. And we have data showing that renal protective effects, such as slowed progression of CKD, remain. Second, I think this misconception comes from the enrollment cutoff used in the studies, that if the patient's EGFR falls below that cutoff, that then that is when we would be stopping the medication. However, in studies such as Credence and DAPA-CKD, where we are seeing these renal protective effects, the medications were continued even below the initiation threshold. So the protocols used for these studies are the blueprints for our clinical practice. So if they specify continuing an SGLT2 at EGFR is below 40, 30, or even 20 milliliters per minute, then it is important to practice the same way. So to address the final piece of when we're going to stop an SGLT2, 
Based on the data we have at this time, SGLT2s should be stopped once a patient starts kidney replacement therapy, either dialysis or kidney transplantation. We don't have enough data at this time to determine if they would be effective in dialysis. For those with kidney transplants taking immunosuppressants, there is a concern for increased risk of infection, so KDGO does not recommend SGLT2s to be used in transplant patients, but this may change as we accumulate more data in this population. So lastly, Germander, I want to talk about phenarinol. It's a relatively new drug approved by the FDA in July of 2021 for the prevention of renal function decline in patients with diabetes, but it also has cardiovascular benefits. I personally haven't seen phenarinone used very much, so I'm wondering where phenarinone fits in. It, is this something that I should be routinely recommending to every patient with diabetes who has comorbid CKD? Or should its use be limited to specific patients who meet the LEC criteria? And would it be beneficial to use both an SGLT2 inhibitor and phenarinone together? These are all great questions, Stuart, and I'm sure that others can agree that they haven't yet seen phenarinone used very much. It is, however, gaining increased interest, especially in the world of nephrology, specifically due to these recent trials. Phenarinone is a first-in-class non-steroidal MRA. It works by preventing reabsorption of sodium both in the kidneys at the proximal convoluted tubule and in the blood vessels and cardiac tissue. Through this mechanism, phenarinone reduces fibrosis and inflammation as well as albuminuria, all of which will result in those renal and cardiovascular benefits that we've seen. The data from Fidelio DKD and Figaro DKD trials support its use in patients with diabetes and CKD, so it is suggested as an add-on therapy, and I would recommend this for patients who are normal kalemic with persistent albuminuria despite maximally tolerated ACE or ARB therapy. That being said, having that combination of ACE or ARB with phenarinone would increase a patient's risk for hyperkalemia and careful monitoring of potassium is definitely recommended, especially in those patients with reduced kidney function. While we would want to prioritize first getting our patients on an SGLT2, that first-line therapy, there may be a benefit to using an SGLT2 and phenarinone together. The Fidelity Analysis is a pre-specified pooled analysis of both the Fidelio DKD and Figaro DKD studies and it, it looked at the effects of phenarinone in patients taking SGLT2 inhibitors. This analysis suggests that phenarinone reduces albuminuria and demonstrates cardiovascular and kidney outcome benefits with or without an SGLT2 on board. These studies were not powered for this analysis, but this data does suggest that there may be additional protection seen with this combination therapy, especially since there was benefit seen in addition to maximally tolerated ACE or ARM. In addition, with Phenarinone's mechanism, we can see those elevations in potassium levels. When combined with SGLT2 inhibitors, there may be potentially a lower risk for hyperkalemia. In fact, in the Fidelity analysis, there were actually fewer hyperkalemia-related events with Phenarinone in patients who were also on an SGLT2 compared to those who were not on an SGLT2. More robust data is needed to really identify whether there's a benefit to using phenarinone and SGLT2s together, but current data suggests there's no safety signals to the combination. Like the SGLT2s, phenarinone can be an expensive drug for some patients, and because it is relatively new, 
we do have to worry about insurance coverage. In the case that cost is a barrier, it may be reasonable to consider a steroidal MRA such as spironolactone or aplerinone. These agents also have demonstrated reductions in albuminuria. However, there are no current studies on steroidal MRAs for use in this population. So that's kind of the reason why they're not getting as much attention as venerinone. And there is also a concern for higher incidences of hyperkalemia with the steroidal MRAs. That being said, the KDGO guidelines do mention that choice of steroidal or non-steroidal MRA should be determined by looking at the patient as a whole, prioritizing their compelling indication. So if a patient is on spironolactone for heart failure, for example, they can maintain that therapy. And it's also worth mentioning that there's currently no data available for switching from a steroidal MRA to venerinone. Darren, Kara, Germinder, thank you so much for being on the iFormerX podcast today and for writing the commentary, Top 10 Things Every Clinician Should Know about the KDGO 2022 Clinical Practice Guideline for Diabetes Management and Chronic Kidney Disease. Well, tell us what you do in your practice. Are you routinely recommending that all patients with diabetes and an eGFR of less than 60 be prescribed? an SGLT2 inhibitor, and what about a venerinone? What are some of the things you do in your practice to ensure that kidney function is routinely screened and monitored? Remember, only iFormerX members can leave comments and use the interactive features on our website, so be sure to sign in. And be sure to check out the American Pharmacists Association's Evidence-Based Practice Literature Evaluation Series. If you are a board-certified ambulatory care pharmacist, You can earn recertification and continuing education credit for listening to this podcast and reading the written commentary. So to learn more, just click on the link posted below the written commentary on the iFormerX website. And lastly, I'd like to thank Dan Zlot and the rest of the APHA staff who supported the partnership between APHA and iFormerX to create the Evidence-Based Practice Literature Evaluation Series. APHA's financial support over the past four years have enabled us to reach more pharmacists and student pharmacists and demonstrates their commitment to advancing pharmacy practice. I know the leadership at APHA, both its elected leaders and the staff, believe pharmacists play a critically important role in our healthcare system. And I so appreciate the commitment of APHA has made to advancing our profession, promoting the unique role that pharmacists play and supporting our work here at iFormerX. So thank you, Dan and Q and previously Steve for making this collaboration possible and producing the Evidence-Based Practice Literature Evaluation Series. This is Stuart Haynes, Editor-in-Chief of iFormerX, signing off. Mm-hmm.